Welcome to Feel More, Buy More, the marketing and advertising podcast from System One that puts its data where its mouth is. This year's Marketing Effectiveness Must Read, Orlando Woods Lemon, is published today by the IPA. In part two of our Lemon podcast special, Orlando sits down with Tom Ewing again for a chapter-by-chapter tour of the book. You are listening to me, Tom Ewing, Head of Marketing, and with me is Orlando Wood, once again. Hello. Chief Innovation Officer, uh, whose book, Lemon, is out today. Um, It's the 15th of October. Actually, in real life, we are at F Week, where Orlando is presenting findings from Lemon for the first time to an... A rapturous uh, reception, we're sure, and uh, so we are. We're but we're recording this as a sort of author's notes, a kind of guide to Lemon. If you've been at that conference, you'll have a copy of the book. Uh, you might be getting a copy of the book from one of your contacts at System One. You might be buying it from the IPA. There's all sorts of ways that you can uh, can read Lemon, and we want to make it easier for you. But we also want to give you a little something extra, and that's why we've got Orlando here to talk through the book uh, chapter by chapter and kind of you know talk around some of the sort of crucial ideas that are in it um so orlando how does it feel uh, that the book has now come out <laughs> well it's it's uh, it's it's been a labor of, of love and yeah. actually it has been a labor of love uh, and i'm you know delighted and uh, with how it looks and and how how it how it feels and I, I hope everyone else enjoys it too as much as I enjoyed writing it. It's um, it's in five parts really the book. Uh, uh, just to give you a sense of the overall flow, you know, we 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 start by looking at the the problem uh, that faces advertising today, and that's that creativity or sort of creative effectiveness is is falling. Uh, and this is something that Peter Field uh, has has you know shown with his latest work in, uh, at, at Cannes. And so you know that's the starting point for the book. Why is advertising effectiveness falling? And the rest of the book is sort of a diagnosis and a, and a cure, really. So the second, th- so, I mean, that's an important point to raise, yes. really. That this isn't you know this book isn't a whinge. It's a it's a it's a it's a positive book. Yes. Yes, it's outlining a serious issue, um, something that's affecting advertising quite quite gravely at the moment. It provides proof that that this is affecting advertising, but it also provides some you know good practical solutions. I, I think it does, Tom. It's kind of you to say so. Thank you. Yes. I mean, it is. It is that. It is. Um, you know, we set the scene up front by talking about this this decline in creative effectiveness. Um, something that we've actually observed in our testing as well of, of you know creatively awarded work over the last ten years or so. Yeah, I mean it was it was interesting. This, we did um, we did some work about Can uh, earlier this year, and it was you know we 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 just kind of got going on it when we learned that Peter Field was uh, was going to be presenting um, his analysis of the kind of creative you know effectiveness of creatively awarded works, and we thought like oh bloody hell. Um, let's hope it agrees. And actually, it completely agreed uh, because there has, you know, there has been this genuine decline in effectiveness, and we've seen it over the course of this decade. It, actually, you've got some 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 stuff in the book that shows that the the this year's winners, the 2019 winners, actually performed worse. Yes. Than than even the average TV ad, and yeah. the average TV ad does not perform very well. That's right. I mean, Peter calls it, you know 
quite quite provocatively disposable creativity, you know, creativity that's advertising that's designed really for very short-term sort of um, effects and that, that it won't have that sort of lasting um, result. And I suppose that, so the, so the first chapter is, all, is, about, is about setting the scene, but also explaining why uh, emotional advertising is so effective and providing some evidence for it, really, uh, evidence on a large scale that, that we haven't published before, uh, showing, showing how across a number of different sectors, you know, if you use emotional measurement and apply uh, how people feel, how audiences feel to um, excess share of voice or share of voice, you can much better explain in-market growth, uh, brand growth so, over so a longer period. The excess share of voice model, the SAV model, that, that's become a kind of... Um, you know, uh, marketers have actually, there's been complaints from marketers that it's quite hard to apply. It's very difficult to establish share of voice data and such like. But it's it's become a kind of gold standard, this idea that if you invest more, well, you, you, exactly. you'll, you'll you get know. more. But, uh, uh, but uh, we're uh, showing that actually the, the kind of, the predictiveness. Yeah, so it, it's more, ex you know, that it explains a certain amount of growth. Um, and I, I think, you know, Les and Peter will say that it, you know it, it doesn't explain everything, but it explains a certain amount of growth. But but when you apply, as we have done, emotional response overlay that data on top, you can get a much better uh, fit. I suppose it's more explanatory of what's happening happening in the real world in the in the, in the period subsequent. So um, emotion uh, and uh, emotional response to advertising is important. We've shown it. The IPA have shown it in their in their analysis of camp campaign type, um, and uh, it's a it's a pattern that we keep seeing. And you know, but increasingly we seem to be doing the opposite, <laughs> um, and creating work that isn't uh, and engaging. It's, and it's why the, the 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 fact this is this is the, the sort of a really key point because this is why it's a bad thing that advertising is becoming more left-brained. Yes, yes. Because you know, yes. it's, it's, it's failing to have that emotional resonance, it, it that is, kind of impact. It is, yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, as we show in the book, over half of ads, TV ads today in the UK and the US, you know, um, are, are only achieving sort of minimal levels of emotional response, a one star, as we call, as we yeah. call it. And this is drawn from the System 1 Ad Ratings database. Uh, a comprehensive database that tests every ad on television in seven major categories. Um, so, I mean, basically, that's a, a lot of ads. So we're, we're drawing on, uh, you know, not only... I think one of the things that's, that's interesting about Lemon is that it combines this kind of longitudinal study, this, this study of, you know, going back and looking at the same week in October every year uh, uh, for Coronation Street, the stuff that's been, the stuff that's been shown on the UK's um, uh, longest-running and best soap, and then also this kind of very broad analysis of of, of modern advertising that, that that kind of draws on you know. So it's got it's got breadth and depth. So that's that's chapter one. That's the which which is creativity and effectiveness, and that's kind of setting out the sort of you know the foundations that we're building this work on. But that's the those, those are the sort of evidential foundations, and then we've got the theoretical foundations, which come from the work of Ian McGilchrist. Um, now, we talked quite a lot in the previous podcast about Ian McGilchrist, um, who, you know, you told me he had, he's got quite an unusual background. And yes. He was a, 
an, an English professor. Who well, a Renaissance man, you could say. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, a broad range of, uh, of, of experience, talent, knowledge. Um, that actually, you know, one of the things that the book sort of seems sort of says is that is that creativity requires range. You know, to yeah. spot things that haven't been seen before. Uh, to see in this breadth of, of experience is so important in an increasingly specialised world. There's a really you know. nice study, isn't there, in there, about comics. There is um, a great study, yeah. Where they, they looked at... Um, they looked at kind of, you know, they, they tried to work out. They looked at sort of the comics that had become the most valuable, that kind of gained in value over time. And they said, well, look, how can we, how can we predict uh, what, you know, what causes them? to gain in value and what they found to their surprise is that the the thing that really kind of predicted it was the range of experience that the creators had basically if you had creators that had worked on lots of different kinds of comics you know romance war crime superheroes whatever different genres those were the ones that were much more likely to become hits quite quite and it was and in fact you know one person with that range of of you know experience was uh, better equipped than a team of people with the same breadth of experience because one person can see things from, from every perspective in a way that you know several people perhaps can't or they can't put it together in the same way. So it's a sort of, you know, they can make connections. It's yes, they can connection make, exactly, thing. exactly. So, that, so, so in a, an increasingly specialised world, you know, range yeah, is definitely. very important and... Uh, that, that is one of the themes of the book, really. And that's what... Um, Politicians used to call it a hinterland. Yes, probably. Probably that's... Yeah, that's right. You know, Ted yeah, Heath it was, exactly. I think. He used to say, you know, well, you need a, a large hinterland. Yeah. Um, things to draw on. Yeah. Um, and the best creatives do, uh, you know, have that, of course. Um, but, but that's what the... That's, you know, that's Ian McGilchrist is, <laughs> in my view, you know, he has that, bene that, that, yeah. that benefit. Um, so he, he has a... You know, he's done a great deal of work. Um, he spent 20 years writing the book, The Master and His Emissary. And he talks about the divided brain, and this is what chapter two is about. And it's about, um, you know, the, the two halves of the brain are structurally quite different. They're, the brain is divided, and it's asymmetrical. And, um, you know, we, we've historically sort of, we've come to dismiss this idea that the left and the right brain, you know, are, are different in, in any way uh, through pop psychology and so on, which has, has, has sadly, you know, set back the study of brain lateralization over the last, you know, 30, 40 years. But what, um, what McIlchrist has done is ask the question, like a good scientist should, you know, what, why, do, why are there two halves uh, of the brain and what, what, why, are they, why are they to this day separated? And they're structurally quite different. So the left hemisphere um, has more sort of localized, compartmentalized sort of nerve structures, if you like, neurons. Um, whereas the right brain has greater branching, more overlap, um, you know, sort of, uh, of, of the neurons. And also uh, it has a, a greater ratio of, of white to gray matter than the left. And that's important because the right, with the right brain's greater sort of white matter, that's the sort of thing, the stuff, the stuff that helps conductance, it's called myelin, uh, which means faster sort of, faster sort of reactions, if you like. Um, also, the two halves of the brain, because of that myelin, they, they respond differently to pharmacological agents and to hormones. Um, 
And so, you know, there are, there are structural and physical reasons why these two, two brains, two centers of consciousness, actually, um, might behave slightly differently. Um, but it's not that they are, you know, doing different things, that is what the Gilchrist sort of says, it's that they're doing things differently, they have different takes on the world. And the two halves of the brain are connected by something that's called the corpus callosum. And the corpus callosum bridges the two brains, yes, but actually its main purpose really is to help one half of the brain inhibit the other at any given time. And over history, this, uh, over time, millennia, you know, the corpus callosum is getting smaller and more inhibitory. And what what we, you know, what, what we know is that the, the left brain has a greater inhibitory effect on the right than the right does on the left. And over periods you know, in history and, and, and over time, it's possible to sort of trace um, you know, left brain preferences uh, in art and culture and, and in philosophy even uh, uh, where you know the left brain tends to start to dominate over a you know given time, and so that's that's really what the what, what chapter two is about. It's about showing that the, the characteristics of these the, the pref thinking style preferences of left and right brain, and what they and what they look like. And the left brain uh, is more goal orientated, more linear, sort of cause and effect in its linearity. Uh, likes to see things in simple terms. Um, it loves clarity. It can't bear ambiguity. Uh, it loves things, you know, it sort of sees things, therefore, as true or false, as, as lies or, or truths, um, uh, one or the other. You know, it's very sort of binary in that way. Um, it, it loves to categorize things. It takes them out of context, and it, and it uses them. It creates models of the world. It loves tools to sort of manipulate the world. And one of these tools is language. And language is, resides largely in the left, although important features are dealt with by the right brain as well. Um, language, signs, and symbols to some extent as well are all sort of left brain things um, to, to sort of control the world because control and power are things of the left brain. Um, and in terms of sort of you know, I I emotions, what's interesting is that anger lateralizes to the left. Um, so those things tend to go together, power, control, anger, you know, those sorts of things, a loss of control and anger, you know, sort of go together. Um, and, and and it had, but it has no real, real, real sense of depth or perspective or time. And, um, you know, the only sort of thing it can deal with in, in musical terms is rhythm. Um, so that's, that's sort of the left brain it loves it to abstract so, and, so and a sort of left brain take the world apart. Music. I think it's probably, um, you know, the music stuff, because the, the book being a book is, is quite a visual uh, document. There are some listening notes, though, Tom. There are some listening notes, yes, and we're putting together some playlists, um, some left and right brain playlists. But I think that, the, you know, obviously the book kind of leans quite heavily on the visual. This being a podcast, though, would something like, something like a kind of march... Yes, a march a, in 4-4 four, four time would yes, be very would be much very left, uh, brain. left brain. Especially if you're, you're actually marching to it, kind yes, of, you know, yes. in a kind of goal-oriented yes. manner. Yes, yes. Um, you're actually kind of, you know, going somewhere. Exactly. No, that's a great example. I mean, you know, marching music or any, anything that in, in simple 4-4 four, four time would be, you know, simple rhythm is what the left brain likes. 
Um, and you know, you can sort of see that played out in the, in the world around us, actually, in, in terms of how rhythmic things have started to become. But yes, so th those are the features of the left brain um, and the way it sort of, t uh, the things that it likes and the things that it sort of, uh, you know, grabs hold on onto. Um, and it represents the world for us internally, you know, but it becomes a bit of it, its own sort of hall of mirrors. The, the right brain uh, is very different in, the, in what it interests it because it, it's broad and vigilant. Uh, so it looks around it all the time at what's going on. It's open to novelty and contradiction. It ha has to be because, you know, it, it needs to watch out for, 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 for predators. Um, and so it, uh, it, 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 it can deal with contradiction. That's important because it, it means that it, it can understand ambiguity and appreciate ambiguity. It can understand uh, metaphor. And because it can see two things as being true simultaneously, it can understand and appreciate humor. Um, so all of these things are, you know, kind of uh, reliant, really, on the right brain. And the right brain, if the left brain does, you know, tools and things, the right brain does people and empathy. And there's a very interesting connection between empathy and, and perspective. So it, it can deal with perspective and understands, you know, depth. You know, there's an interesting study in the book about how you draw a flower with your yeah. right or left brain. You know, the left brain draws it as flat and abstracted and a prototypical flower head, but the right brain does the full, you know, does the full thing in the same individual. Yeah. Um, so the right brain does depth uh, and, and perspective. And, and, it, and you know, as, as McGilchrist points out, empathy and depth sort of go hand in hand because, you know, in, in a painting, for instance, uh, where you have perspective, it means that you're seeing something from an individual's perspective, um, whereas if it's, if it's flat and presented to you without perspective, you've kind of got this God's eye view where, where, where there isn't this sense of empathy. So perspective and depth, I think, you know, uh, and empathy sort of go hand in hand. So, so perspective, depth, empathy, but a sense of lived time comes with the right brain, which means that it can be a bit nostalgic and it, can, uh, and it likes things, it prizes things from the past, actually. And it understands its time and place in the world. It's very self-aware, uh, understands what, what you know where it is, and, and because it can do live time and depth and all those things, um, it can do music and music um, which which requires harmony. You know, uh, and it doesn't require it, but you know, the right brain can do harmony, and harmony is the equivalent of visual depth. You know, it's sort of a layering of things within the right. music. So, so yeah, so that's that's what the right brain uh, you know likes. So some someone like um, I mean you say in your in your listening notes someone like Bach, Bach and the composer from the Romantic period in particular, you know um, they have uh, I mean Bach neurological studies have shown that you know Bach because because uh, of its counterpoint and the it, the number of different individual voices within a within a piece of music. It can be appreciated both as a whole, so you know you listen to the whole thing, but also in terms of the individual lines or voices within the music that that can be listened to in and of themselves, and and the right it's like nectar to the right brain because it it, it sort of you know it, it can it can under it's it's constantly evergreen you know, um, and and so you know and, and there are, I put some listening notes in if you want to listen to some bark in in, in the book, uh, but it tries to show that, um, and and the Romantic period of course um, 
you get the, the resurgence of Bach. You know, in the classical period that comes afterwards in music, you get music that is very restrained uh, and, and, you know, appropriate, I suppose is the term, that, that signals very clearly to the listener where it's going with no surprises. Yeah. Um, and, and, then, and then, of course, the, then you, get, you come back to, you know, the romantic period and you get music by Chopin and Schubert and... Uh, and and uh, you know Mendelssohn rediscovers Bach, of course, um, and you've got uh, Albaneth, Grieg. You know all of these composers. They sort of base their work often in in time and place, uh, in a in a local tradition. The mazur, you know, the mazurka, uh, the Chopin writes his nocturnes, the visual ambiguity that comes with dreams. All of these things are very right brain things. So that's that's um, you know so in the, in the book you know I talk about these changes of perception and modes of thinking over time, and trace them really I suppose to give people a sense of what right brainness is, and what left brainness is. There's plenty to kind of dig into there, but of course I think probably for a lot of readers, the the cultural stuff the cultural stuff is absolutely I mean I find it fascinating. Once you start getting onto the kind of you know the the real sort of fuse gets lit when you start uh, talking about how it applies to advertising in chapter three, That's you right. know, That's where right. we are now in terms of the kind of cultural shift that we're seeing now and the dominance of the left brain. That's right. That's right. So so that's what chapter three is, as you say, is about. This sort of it's it's a, it's an historical cultural shift, really, that that we are going through and have been through over the last fifteen or twenty years. Um, a more analytical way of thinking um, that is a bit divorced from reality. That's sort of caught up in its own models and representations of the world, um, and thinks on a conceptual rather than a real lived embodied way, on plane, if you like. And so, um, you know, I, I start the chapter by talking about, you know, the state of the world today, frankly, you know, um, nations divided. You know, if, if, if the world is divided, then so too are our brains. Uh, the increase, uh, increasing intolerance, anger, uh, desire for power, um, you know, all of these things that are associated with left, left brain dominance and, and the problems that you get in society with left brain dominance. And then I talk about its effect on, on culture and study, you know, I look at uh, films, music, lyrics in music, comedy, uh, and, and plot, really, a, a sort of shift towards the left brain since the turn of the century uh, in, in culture around us, you know, yeah. the, what it, the traces it's left um, in culture. And then I suppose I move on to talk, of course, about advertising. And because, you know, advertising, advertising's relationship to culture is a very intimate one, and that's kind of another theme that's going on in the book. Um, advertising doesn't just... It, it both reflects, but also guides. You know, historically, advertising's always been part of pop culture, and actually that's something that perhaps a left-brain shift where advertising becomes totally, you know, terribly goal-oriented and all about a kind of short-term sales activation type effect um it, it starts it starts abdicating that position in popular culture but but it has historically been a, a really crucial part of popular yes. culture yes um and as such you know the hypothesis is that we'd expect to if there's this big shift towards kind of entertainment and culture that appeals more to the left brain we'd expect advertising to to go to the same suit. way and that, that's right and so um, you know, this increasingly brittle and slightly brutal world we live in um, has, 
has, and that's what the, the chapter shows, is has uh, is visible in advertising. And so what I do is I you know can reconstruct Coronation Street ad breaks going back uh, thirty, uh, well nearly forty, forty years perhaps, um, and uh, look at how this shift. Uh, towards left-brain thinking is manifested in the features of advertising through increased abstraction, devitalization, the words on the screen, unilateral communication, you know, me at you rather than showing dialogue and so on. Um, and that, that uh, you know, that's, that's all, all very well. You might think, well, it's just a, just a change in taste and, and so on, but actually it affects uh, the way that people feel about the work. And it happened in 2006. Um, and uh, we've been seeing the effects on advertising effectiveness, as Peter Field and so Lesbianet have shown ever so since. What, what do you think was was the is the is the kind of key shift in two thousand and six that, that? Well, it's it's a, it's a, you, you know, know started, started to push it, things. It, I, I'm a, I, you know, chapter four sort of talks a bit about this, and um, I think it would be a left brain trap to say what was the one thing that what yeah. did it. Um, it, there's a series of interconnected things and relationships which have all together brought this pressure on on advertisers and advertise and advertising creatives. Um, I mean, this is a this is a this bit, it's been a period of um, you know you, you see it in in short termism that has ar ar arisen in the in the same time frame. The left brain loves is very short termist in the way it thinks. Um, so, so you you sort of see it um, the, the pressure that's been brought to bear, you know, through procurement on on advertising agencies, um, where the task is broken up into lots of different parts and itemized, and you know, there's a there's a resource allocated to each bit. You know, this isn't how a, a creative should really be thinking, um, because it it means that that you're creating left brain sort of processes. Uh, that breaks stuff up, uh, and that's and also shorter time periods for them to to work on the work. You know, is not helpful. Um, but we also see that you know that um, uh, th there's been this sort of the holding companies in this period. You know, really came to the fore in the, in the first decade of this century, and their instincts were also quite left-brained. Yeah because they were to uh, centralize and standardize sort of production of, of work uh, and working with clients to do that, to drive down costs. And uh, when you do that, of course, you start to, you, it leads you inevitably down the path of the global ad. And the global ad, by very its very definition, cannot draw on a localized time or place. Uh, it, it tends to be more unilateral in its communication, me at you, it relies more on words, you know, so the global ad is definitely part of yeah. this. Um, can I, if I can just plug an upcoming yes. episode of this podcast, yes, do. we're actually going to talk through Chapter 4 in more detail, or, or, or you're going to talk through Chapter 4 in more detail with Sarah Carter, uh, co-author of How Not to Plan uh, with Lesbinette and the global planning partner at Adam and Eve DDB. And I'm just going to read you what Sarah wrote about Lemon, because it sums up, I think, quite a lot of the themes. An urgent wake-up call and a simple rallying cry for us all. We need to entertain for commercial gain. We shouldn't need this rigorous and inspiring analysis to remind us of this humble truth, but unfortunately we do. Thank you, Orlando. In, in, the, in the noble um, quest to kind of become more 
economically efficient. You know, it, the the left brain, which is needed, which is needed for a kind of an industry to work. If it was all right brain practitioners, then then it would kind of disappear up its own posterior potentially uh, from a business perspective quite quickly. But um, it's kind of overstepped its boundaries, and and that and there needs to be this rebalancing. I think so, and and uh, that's that's you know what what this chapter is is about really, and and. Uh, you know, you kind of also see it in one of the other things the chapter touches on is the is the kind of mindset and values of people working in advertising too, drawing on some fascinating work by Andrew Tenzer and um, Ian Murray. Um, you know, that, that we've become very analytical in the way that we approach problems. So, you know, one of the lovely examples, this is actually in media agencies as opposed to ad agencies, but, you know, similar studies have been done in ad agencies. That media agencies, you know, you give people, a, uh, you show people a banana, a panda, and a, and a, uh, and a monkey, uh, and you say, you know, which of these goes, which of these two things sort of go together, just which, which goes with the monkey. Uh, and, and people in, the, in media agencies will put the banana with, uh, we'll put the put the panda and the monkey together because it classify it categorizes them as mammals, um, whereas you know, the general public will put the well, thinks more holistically, you know, will uh, and more right-brained uh, will put together the the banana and the monkey. So, and and I think it shows you know what's happening in 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 the in the media more generally that we're becoming very analytical and and divorced a bit from you know the sort of holistic way of looking at the world. But one of the implications, though, for this is that if, if you know, ultimately, because uh, a lot of um, a lot of the kind of overthinking of ideas and of insight and of strategy comes out of, dare I say, research, um, and so there's 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 this kind of sense of like, you know. Are we? Are, are you? Are you writing us out of a job? Are we? Is you know what is the role of research in? Well, exactly. I mean, I mean, I think the role of research, I talk, talk about this in the book, but um, research, when it's done well, you know, can be, uh, it should be used as a guide, really, uh, as a guide to, to what, what works, what, what, what makes people feel something. Um, and then, you know, creatives can adjust accordingly. Some lovely examples we'll go into with Sarah, probably, um, on, on um, how John Webster saw it and used it. Uh, in his work, uh, you know, with the, the honey monster and so on, so you can you can tw- it it should be used as a guide. And of course, uh, knowing as we do that that emotion emotional response helps to explain market share growth, you know, it gives you a sense of confidence as well in the work and the client confidence, and it actually enables you perhaps to take a bit of a risk, you yeah. know, because you know that it's going to be, it's going to create great feeling in someone. But without being, without being Without being stupid or, without, or prescriptive. Yeah, yeah without exactly. kind of sort of, you yeah. know, like going through, I mean, one of the things with, with there, are, there are an awful lot of things that are, are wrong with kind of eye tracking and, um, you know, facial coding to, to kind of look at adverts. But one of the things is that it, it privileges this analytic second-by-second second view of an ad. You know, imagining every second of an ad as this little slice that can be optimized, rather than looking at the much more right-brained, holistic view. 
um, what Khan would call the remembering self, which is the, the important bit that actually kind of takes the decisions. And, um, and so instead you get, the, you know, you get like perhaps one of the reasons that, that, that today's ads are so left-brained is that there's been more of these uses of these kind of like sort of, you know, highly analytical methods to kind of attempt to, to, to sort of slice up and optimize ads, yes. which have actually ended up having, at a macro level, at a brand building level, the opposite effect. Yes, and, and, and measures that are rooted in a left brain representation of the world rather than how people really respond to stuff. I mean, that's, that's, that's the truth of it. So that, that's chapter four, really. Uh, and then chapter five is, well, you know, so what can we, what can we do about it? What, what does creativity for growth really look like? And I sort of open the chapter by talking about the importance of humor and metaphor and a sense of awe and how these things are related to very much the right brain you know, things that the right brain appreciates. But they're also uh, things that give us a sense of proportion uh, on the world and, and, and understand our place in it. Things that are lacking uh, today from advertising to, to a large extent. And they're things that, that point to what effective creativity has. And so I talk about, the, I start the chapter by looking at, you know, different types of, of joy that are, that are created uh, in, in people by advertising. You know, things like humor, amusement, schadenfreude, um, or uh, a sense of ecstasy or upliftment, I suppose you I could mean, call it. I mean, that's, you know, probably worth stressing this, because these are, of course, really quite different emotions. You know, schadenfreude and, and upliftment are kind of, they're both, they're, they're about as far away in one way as you can kind of get. But they're both actually very powerful, kind of right-brained and very positive emotional yes, responses. I mean, and I think I think that one of the problems that happens when you start talking about emotional response is that people just think, oh, they you know they just want everything to be kind of like happy, and the world isn't like that. You know, you've got to no, no. you've got to be more provocative. Yeah, yes, I think that's right. And you know, I use the Schadenfreude term advisedly because you know we're not talking about real cruelty no, to no, people no. Uh, we're talking about i suppose a, a, a comedic sense of of comeuppance you know a sort of a sense of perspective that that you know, an excess in uh, excessive folly has been sort of called out perhaps um so i, I mean i talk about a bit about that in the book and um I, but I mean, these something like the i don't know if you mentioned in the book but the, the volkswagen laughing horses. the horses yes yes exactly um, a great example and that's that's a fantastic example uh because it's a double schadenfreude as well you have you know initially you have you're, you're chuckling away as you, you with the horses as you see the uh, you see them laugh at this hapless, hapless this hapless non Volkswagen owner who uh, who is unable to park his trailer and the horses are kind of you know literally rolling about in uh, in, in in one case and then you also get this kind of this double double correction uh, <laughs> thing where 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 now you're laughing at the poor horses who are kind of suddenly you know Looking shocked into silly. silence yes. as a, as a VW owner um, is. Uh, that's great. Is able to, to park. Uh, yeah. We can get that ad in there. Absolutely. So, so, so different types of... Uh, really, it's about creating a right-brained response. So, yeah. so humour, uh, and I talk a bit about metaphor as well and the, the importance of metaphor. And I think what's interesting for in, in creative development terms about metaphor, as McGilchrist says, is that metaphor is a vehicle for thought. It's not just a, you know, a, a, a sort of... Uh, a linguistic ornament. 
it is something that actually helps you to understand a problem differently and to appreciate it differently because you appreciate it from a slightly different perspective. So metaphors in and of themselves are useful in creative development, but they're also uh, useful as a device, you know. Um, and then, you know, I, I kind of talk about how there are certain types of device, we talked about them before, uh, principally characters and, and scenarios, which allow for right-brainedness to come out in the work, you know, the sense of betweenness and, and place and all of those good things. Um, and I talk about the fluent device and some of the work we've done to show how it has disappeared in the same time frame because of this swing yeah. to the left brain. Uh, and how just how effective these devices are. You know, I did the work on the IPA's database to show that those long-term campaigns that have a fluent device are more, more likely to generate those long and broad effects. So, uh, and yet it's hardly being used, and, it, and it's certainly not being used uh, in, in digital, even by those, those, uh, those brands that have a fluent device. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's not carrying not, through not, to those not other channels. They're not getting them into the, uh, onto screens in the way that, that they that they ought to be but I, I, the other thing of course that you talk about in chapter five because we've talked about the, the the things that people should be doing which are the kind of ways to kind of inject a bit more right brainness into creativity these you know the emotional roots and the um that you can take and the uh and things like the fluent device and metaphors and such like but of course you also talk a bit about some of the things that brands are doing um, which is which are you know the the particular tactics that are that are popular yes now yes that are that are um, well I that do are boosting left brain I do and I I talk I talk about you know disruptive uh, advertising disruptive purpose advertising uh, as well and this idea that you you know it's a way it's a way to get sort of um, earned media by 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 doing something divisive or uh, something that, that actually sets one set of people against another you know that that divides people on ground on the basis of their values perhaps and that uh, is very short-termist in its thinking and its and its results and I give some examples of that and how you can predict this, you know, and, and, and the short-term response to advertising as well. So this, this, um, this notion of, uh, of disruption, uh, which you see actually, I talk about it in earlier chapters of, with, with modern abstract art, um, you know, that, that this is really, I suppose, uh, uh, very much, well, it is a very left-brain thing, the desire to shock uh, is a left-brained um, thing because uh, people who have and people who have left-brain dominance, you know, um, through for whatever reason, uh, tend to be um, tend to feel the need to sort of shock themselves and anyone else into feeling something, um, and that uh, that is not you know that's not the way of long-term brand building. So it's yeah. So it's not it's not to do with the you know it's it's not it's not to do with the the particular causes or the particular things. It's this it's this attempt to use purpose to disrupt because actually we've seen examples of uh, you know well there's a there's a long history of brands using using yeah. good causes yeah um, and and that that to but, kind but of it's in, the way include it's rather it than exactly. exclude and kind of bring you know yes bring people together, together so. rather than rather than drive a wedge which which i think is is irresponsible actually uh, in, in many cases and it's part of the problem of you know that society has today and are there any other uh, 
any other kind of things that you're that you're seeing in advertising that are sort of you know that you think we should do less of to to sort of lessen the the left brain well i i think you know i mean it is an air that that is a an area i'd like to to spend a bit more time looking at um and uh this sort of division of people on their on their value around the basis of their values um because i think it is a, it is a dangerous a dangerous tactic um and not beneficial for brands really um so i'd i'd like to do a bit more work on that area and and start to relate that to the emotional response that people have when they see an ad you know because because your values which are, which actually are probably uh, genetic and hereditary if you read Jonathan Haidt he t- talks about this um that that you know it's not as if you could change these very easily anyway um and so just to set people one set of people up against another i think is 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 not a good thing for yeah, society yeah. It, as it, a whole it, it, you, it becomes about um there's a lot of ads where you know where this shock is what it's actually doing is it's kind of violating one of these particular values and and Jonathan Haidt talks about these these five values that um you know basically everyone everyone agrees on on there are a couple of big ones that everyone agrees on care and um, care and fairness yes and then there are then there are these other three uh, purity and loyalty and what's called what's called sanctity, sanctity yes um that you know for for in general they're less important than the first two but for some people they're they're more important. They're more for some yeah. people. They're almost as important as yes. the first two, and for some people, they're yes. not important at all. Yeah. And that's where the that's where a lot of the big divides are going. So you'll get an advert, um, you know, which which a lot of the kind of aggressive ads, uh, like the the Harvey Nicks one, for instance, uh, which we keep talking about. That there violates most of them. Yeah, yeah, it? yeah. I'm sorry, I spent it on myself, but there's definitely there's quite a lot of kind of, you know like sort of loyalty and 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 uh violations going on because it, these people like literally kind of betraying their their families and you know by by spending money on themselves rather than giving them gifts there's a kind of uh, sanctity violation because it's a it's a sort of time of gift giving but actually these people are getting kind of paper clips or whatever and there's a fairness violation um so you know this is so 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 everyone was appalled by it even people who don't care about loyalty and sanctity were like no goodness sake this is terrible you can't just give someone paper clips at christmas which of course is exactly the kind of shocking disruptive effect well that's right that, which comes that, back to the, the left brain yeah you know, that the um, ad was trying to yes, go for yeah so that's that's essentially the book that's and then, the book and then we um, you know we i end on a, a little manifesto really right. for um you know yeah. if you were setting up an ad agency today what 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 would you believe in? What would you What would you do? Um, and um, well, have a read, see what you think. Yeah. So what's 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 next? What's the next step for Lemon? You're going on a book tour. Uh, I'm going on a uh, yes. There's going there are various events coming up uh, aside from uh, F Week. So uh, and we're showing the film, of course. Yeah, that's uh, this week. That's on. Um, that's on Friday. Um, at the Curzon Soho, so have, uh, please register for that. If and you'd that like will to involve uh, a chat. As we with mentioned Ian. last time, yeah, a, a chat with with Ian McGilchrist yes. himself. Yes, coming down from his um, well, he's he's, he's Croft. He, uh, yes, via Skype. Uh, oh, uh, he's via Skype. He's <laughs> not yes. actually coming down. He's, he's not, not coming. He's no, not from Sky. No, no. I'll just... And then um, yes, we're we're doing uh, we're we're having a few other events, a launch event, uh, System One launch event. So um, uh, watch out for that, and. Um, uh, I will be uh, coming to see various people and presenting in various places. Uh, going to Canada um, uh, in uh, in November as well. So, 
uh, we, we're hoping um, we're hoping you like it, and I'd love your feedback. Yeah, absolutely. If you if you have read the book um, and you've got any comments, or you want to you know have a chat with with Orlando or with other people at System One about the stuff in there, um, we would be absolutely delighted to yeah to hear to hear some comments, comments, criticisms if there are any criticisms, questions. You know, we will yeah. see. I'll just finish by saying. I hope she doesn't mind me divulging this, but um, the proofreader who, who read the book um, wrote to me to say um, just how you know uh, happy the book had made her uh, because she was you know so worried about the state of the world and what's going on in it, and that the book had made sense of things for her, and um, you know she had a, a new appreciation for the world as a result, which was a lovely thing for her to say, um, and. Um, I hope you know you all feel the same. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. As always, you can find all of our content at systemonegroup.com. Follow us on social media at System One Research. All of the links and references from this episode will be in the show notes, which also includes a free trial to our ad ratings product. <laughs>